1: That is douglas.ca slash Canadaland. Maybe it's Canada. Or maybe it's just me, but either way, the story of the Vancouver multimillionaire who got shot at his mansion and chopped into 108 pieces by his own cousin after the multimillionaire made an indecent proposal that his cousin's young daughter, who happens to be a minor YouTube reality show celebrity, marry him, the multimillionaire, in order to sweeten a business deal on a proposed gun accessory enterprise. That story was totally unknown to me until I read about it in the New York Times. So right now, listeners in Vancouver are shaking their heads. Of course they know about this story. The story of multimillionaire Gang Won, his cousin who killed him, Li Zhao, and that cousin's daughter, Flo Z, of the YouTube program, Ultra Rich Asian Girls. It's a story that has been covered copiously, mostly in British Columbia, but also in the Chinese press, and to some degree, in the rest of Canada. But I do wonder... Do those same Vancouver listeners know the ins and outs and every plot twist of the billionaire Sherman family murders covered relentlessly by the Toronto Star? And do listeners in Winnipeg know much about the Dennis O'Lond murder case in New Brunswick? News is balkanized in Canada. We do not have 24-7 cable news. We don't have cameras in every courtroom. And we have a weird media culture where if one news organization breaks a big story or claims a big story— Other news organizations often pretend that that story doesn't exist. Big stories tend to get siloed off regionally. And maybe that's a good thing. I mean, maybe we don't need to match the United States in terms of schlocky, grisly, true crime exploitation coverage. But news is news. And this is one hell of a story. Reporter Dan Bolewski of The New York Times says that this is a story about the Canadian immigrant dream gone wrong. And it's about the massive changes happening to Vancouver itself. And Dan Bolewski joins me to talk about it from Montreal in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Tony Predori, Emily Marigold-Klassen, Sanjeev Palais, Danira Sehamerovic, Philip Quinn, Jason Cruikshank, Sean Buchanan, and Amelia Lyon.
0: My name is Amelia and I'm a small business owner in Toronto. I've been a listener of Canada Land since the beginning and I became a supporter after Jesse's interview with Sarah Polley in 2017. I continue to support Canada Land because of the great work our Man is doing on Commons and because of the attention Jesse pays to the treatment of indigenous issues in Canadian media. This
1: episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems... And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get ten percent off of your first month at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope.
2: Hi, Dan. Hi there.
1: Dan, who was Wan Gang before he was shot and cut
2: into 108 pieces? Wan Gang was a Chinese millionaire who became ensnared in a corruption scandal in China and moved to Vancouver in 2005 to get away from the Chinese state. Once in Vancouver, he bought a fleet of Rolls Royces and Bentleys and glittering mansions and started living the life of the rich second generation Chinese in Vancouver. He also bought an island? He did. He bought an island called Pym Island near Vancouver Island, which had a beautiful vintage mansion on the estate, a private beach, and an Azimut yacht. How did he make his money to begin with? The source of his money is actually a murky story. And I worked with my colleagues in the Beijing bureau of the New York Times to try and untangle this. But as far as we can tell, he began in coal exploration and soon moved into other parts of the energy sector and quickly expanded the business across China. His mother also appears to have run a grocery business as well as a hotel chain. And there seemed to have been links between the family and the Chinese government. So this is not a rags to riches story. This is uh, kind of born into wealth. Well, no, it is more of a rags to riches story. I don't think he actually came from rags as it were, but the parents were somewhat modest to begin with. I think his mother did quite well, but then he took the wealth and really multiplied it exponentially and turned it into multiple millions of dollars. And then he runs afoul of the government in China and then comes to Canada. He becomes ensnared in a corruption scandal in China where he tries to bribe a local communist official with gold bars in order to build a mine. And around that time, he ends up coming to Canada
1: there are a lot of millionaires these days. What level of millionaire? Do we have any sense of his
2: net worth? We don't actually. We're talking tens of millions, possibly more, but it's been very hard to pin down the precise number because of the way his assets were funneled into various properties and cars, etc. So it's not clear. I have a much better sense of the Canadian value of his assets, which is about 30 or $40 million Canadian. But I, the, the wealth in China is far faster and much more sprawling. Did he just sort of buy his way into Canada in 2005? Like, how did he get status here? So many would-be aspiring immigrants to Canada seek status in different ways, some through an investment program where they spend a lot of money in order to get residency. In his case, he engaged in a fraudulent marriage to a Chinese-Canadian woman who he married for about a year and eventually divorced her. When you call it a fraudulent marriage, how, how can you say that so definitively? Because during a civil case in Vancouver, the judge called it a fraudulent marriage. That's the only reason I would ever say such a thing, because essentially he married this woman in order to get his papers, according to court documents.
1: Why was he able to stay if a court ruled that
2: this was a fraudulent marriage that was purely for immigration fraud purposes? The conclusion that he was in a fraudulent marriage came only years later in a court case in Vancouver when five women were fighting over his multi-million dollar Canadian estate. He had many, many girlfriends, I understand. According to the civil case over his estate, there were at least uh, 100 girlfriends and mistresses across the world, ranging from Toronto to Shanghai, Vancouver to Montreal.
1: Dan, you've spent a lot of time just trying to figure out who this guy was. He
2: seems to have led a pretty extraordinary life. What can you tell me about him as a person? Wan Gang was emblematic of the futerai, the, which in Mandarin means the second generation of wealthy Chinese, many of whom have come to Canada in recent years in search of wealth and a glittering lifestyle. He was a womanizer and very bling bling. He had a stuffed cougar in his mansion in West Vancouver, a beautiful mansion with floor to ceiling glass windows overlooking the Pacific. He spent a lot of time on dating sites, apparently. And he enjoyed jetting around town in his fleet of Rolls Royces and Bentleys and living the bling bling lifestyle in Vancouver. Okay. That's a world that, I mean, I, th- I guess we've all read something about. It's hard to kind of get your head around what that's like day to day. If you walk around the streets of Vancouver these days, you see Lamborghinis jetting by you know, every few minutes practically because Vancouver has become... A refuge for millionaires from abroad, many of whom come from Asia, many of whom are in their 20s, and who their parents sent to Canada for education and to establish themselves do you feel like we should make a
1: distinction like there's a lot of people who like yes some of those details are true of but they're here legitimately you know there might be various financial benefits to moving their money outside of mainland china to vancouver but this guy's associated with a lot of sordid and unseemly and criminal
2: practices which perhaps does not describe the whole this guy is a particular instance and one should not a thousand percent generalize him to the local population I mean, there's been a vibrant Asian population in Vancouver, you know, stretching back to the establishment of the Canadian Railway, multiple generations of immigrants since the Hong Kong hand- handover who have come and established themselves in Vancouver. He is emblematic of a very specific group of people who've come to Vancouver and Canada in general in recent years, seeking refuge for money and kin. The vast majority are legitimate immigrants. There are some people who are gaming the system And he is emblematic of that. So tell me about this complicated family drama that's, I guess, started when his cousin and his cousin's family came to live with Mr. Juan. Juan Gang had poor cousins living in Montreal who'd come to Canada in a typical, you know, Canadian dream story, looking for a better life. And he brought them over to Vancouver and asked them to come live in his fabulous mansion in Vancouver. And he put some of his assets in their name. That sounds like this is a tax dodge or a tax strategy, I guess. From what I understand, yes, this was an attempt to diversify his assets, as many people do, to to avoid paying taxes on a second home. What can you tell me about Mr. Zhao? So Mr. Zhao, his story is a completely different narrative to that of uh, Gang Wan. Zhao Li grew up in uh, the bedraggled, poor uh, northeastern part of China. And when he was a young boy, his father was a dissident who opposed the Chinese government and was sent to a labor camp And as a result, uh, the young Mr. Lee was bullied mercilessly in school. His father told him, you know, never to stick up for himself and and to just keep his head down. And so he was someone who had had a very difficult childhood and had a lot of simmering resentment about the hand that life had dealt him. But eventually he started a printing company, uh, did quite well for himself, found a dutiful and loving wife and eventually moved to Canada.
1: You describe him as a meek man, that he's uh, barely over five feet tall, that he kind of did work his way up to some level of financial stability prior to him kind of coming at his cousin's behest to, to live in this mansion.
2: Absolutely. He was very diminutive about 5'2". When he testified in court, you had to listen very hard to hear him because he speaks so softly. And I think perhaps because he'd been bullied so much of his life, he had a very submissive manner about him.
1: So his super rich cousin says, come live with me in a mansion in Vancouver, and I'll set you up in my business, and you can you can have a really big upgrade to your quality of life. And so Mr. Zhao brings his wife and his young daughter out to
2: Vancouver. Absolutely. The offer offered the young family instant upward mobility, and they jumped at the opportunity.
1: I mean, the way you describe the relationship in the house, it almost sounds like you know, Zhao Li's wife becomes almost a servant to Mr. Wan. This is not a family situation where everyone's on equal footing.
2: Absolutely not. She's cooking for him, and he complains about the oiliness of the food. Li Zhao is bullying employees in his business in Saskatchewan and and, and doesn't seem to be very adept at business, and he complains about that as well. Gang Wan was occupying, you know, a giant uh, suite at the top part of the mansion, whereas the Li family... We're definitely in a in a less uh, august part of the house. So the relationship between them is slowly fraying and becoming more and more toxic in this hillside mansion. And meanwhile,
1: their their daughter Florence. This is where she's like growing up.
2: This is Florence. Comes as a teenager. She's beautiful. She is smart. She had studied fashion in Milan. She spoke French because of her time in Montreal. And she is living you know, in the house in this toxic ecosystem.
1: But she's also living in a, in a larger community of
2: ultra-wealthy Chinese Vancouver residents. Exactly. So she becomes part of this group of young, fabulously wealthy Asians living in Vancouver. And because of her cousin's wealth, she has an island at her disposal. She has several mansions, you know, the Rolls Royce, etc., which she takes full advantage of.
1: And she becomes a social media superstar.
2: She does. Flo Z, as she was known, became a reality TV star on a show called Ultra Rich Asian Girls, in which four or five fabulously rich Chinese women who are wannabe Kim Kardashians or Paris Hiltons jet around to private yachts and islands, drink pomerol wine out of straws and discuss the virtues, for example, of having a rich, ugly boyfriend as opposed to a poor, handsome one.
0: Hi, my name is Florence. My family and I moved to Canada when I was 14 years old. No, 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 no. You don't have to be here. You're a fucking broke girl, okay? Everything you use, I see. You've been pretending this whole time. Okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. I never lied. She's my assistant. Really? Yeah. Really. I swear, my dad pays her.
1: And her name on that show is Flo Z. Or is it Flo Z? Flo Z. That's unpatriotic right there.
2: <laughs> it could just be my own uh, pronunciation. Maybe it was Flo Z.
1: I mean, this this is, I mean, not that I, you know, believe everything I see on reality TV, but here you have this young woman kind of showing off her ultra wealthy lifestyle and her mother is essentially a degraded cook for her wealthy uncle. Like her mother is, is, is serving in this way and, and is cr-
2: criticized. Well, I mean, to be fair, the mother was also doing bookkeeping for the millionaire cousin and they were living in this, you know, fabulous glass-to-ceiling-windowed mansion in West Vancouver overlooking, you know, the Pacific. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, they weren't living in abject poverty. They were living a very nice lifestyle.
1: No, that part was accurate, that she was living this fancy lifestyle, but I suppose it was uh, precarious. It was all at the at the whim of her uncle. Exactly. By your description, Dan, and, and it's not entirely shocking, there were some uh, familial tensions around the household, uh, given this uh, this setup. It seems that when... Mr. Wan's business started to falter, that that's when things kind of really cracked.
2: Yes. His businesses started to falter... It seems to have filtered back to him that Zhao Li was bullying employees and not managing the Saskatchewan real estate interests very well. He was unhappy with the cooking. And I think he began to feel, according to what his family associates told me, that he was being taken advantage of and that the relationship was unequal. And he decided, by all accounts, uh, that he might want to end it. And uh, Zhao Mei Li, the, his cousin, you know, began to tell friends that she worried that she was going to be homeless and that they were going to be kicked out of the house. When does this reach ahead? My understanding is that on a sunny Saturday in May 2015, the two men had their final disagreement, which led to this lethal flare-up. It happened when the poor cousin told the richer cousin that he wanted to develop this rifle stand and get into business together. And uh, when the richer cousin made an offer for the business, which was less than what the poorer cousin wanted, the richer cousin offered to sweeten the deal on the condition that the poorer cousin offer him, Flozy his daughter's hand in marriage. So the deal is from
1: the wealthy cousin to the poorer cousin, yes, I will go into business with you on on our new rifle holder venture, but I, I need you to sweeten the deal
2: by letting me marry your daughter, who is also my cousin. Exactly. The poorer cousin, Zhao Li, became irate and said to him, you are worse than a beast, worse than a pig or a dog, according to his testimony at his murder trial, you know, alleging that this would be incest. And then the killer said that uh, the victim became furious and hit him with a hammer and that he then shot him twice. Okay.
1: How do we get from there to him being cut into 108
2: pieces? He later said in court that he was having hallucinations. Quote, I heard someone talking to me about a bear and how to cut up a bear. So it's, it kind of speaks to his mental state during the crime. And I should mention that he'd sent off his wife and mother-in-law before this altercation. So he's alone on the driveway and his richer cousin is lying there in a pool of blood. He begins to try and dispose of the body, to clean you know, his various knives and the gun. And eventually when his wife and mother-in-law come back and find him, hunched over a body on the driveway, he says to them, you know, go, there's nothing you can do. And then he begins to uh, deal with the, the body and starts to chop it up. Eventually, the two women do call the police and a SWAT team surrounds the mansion.
1: I mean, how does this this meek, diminutive man you describe know how to dismember a corpse into 108 pieces?
2: Well, he was an avid hunter And so was well familiar with how to use a knife. And they had quite a big gun collection in the house because him and the victim would go hunting all the time.
1: About his defense, you write that his defense was trying to get this reduced to manslaughter on the basis of uh, he was provoked by the uh, indecent proposal that he uh, hand over his daughter. Wouldn't the attack with the hammer open up a self-defense defense? defense? I mean, if somebody attacks you with a hammer and then you
2: shoot them, I figured that that would be your go-to defense. That could perhaps be a defense, but I guess the defense lawyer uh, made the calculation that, you know, that the forensic evidence to prove the hammer perhaps was insufficient. And so he went with this perhaps more innovative defense that the killer was provoked by the victim asking for uh, his daughter's hand in marriage.
1: So, I mean, we have to use uh, alleged murder because murder is a technical term, but there's no question that, that Zhao Li killed Mr. Wan. What has happened to the family since? What has happened to Flozy's
2: YouTube show? I know that's sort of a lesser concern, but I am curious. The show Ultra Rich Asian Girls is no longer being aired. And apparently, uh, by all accounts, Flozy has gone underground for for the time being. What about her mom? From my understanding, the mom is still in Vancouver because following the killing... The mom allegedly transferred $2 million from the victim's account into her uh, and her husband's account. And so she is going to face trial for theft. So you've got a situation where, I mean, you, I can imagine both versions of this being credible.
1: They acted appropriately calling the cops once they saw that her husband and father had had killed Mr. Wan but then if the crown is arguing that this was all part of a calculated plot to get 2 million dollars from him that she was somehow uh, involved in this decision or whether she was just sort of scrambling uh, following this tragedy i guess you know, the turn that her life had taken to you know come out of this with something for having put themselves in this position with this wealthy cousin uh, i guess you've kind of got two two
2: possible narratives there absolutely and that's what the family is alleging that you know she made this fund transfer and that the killing was motivated by greed and money and revenge
1: so this has since become a a legal drama where does it stand now
2: well i would be remiss if i did not say that after the killing became a public spectacle seven women came forward saying that they had fathered children with the victim and had a right to his you know 35 million dollar or so estate so there was a separate civil case when after DNA testing was done on the babies and five of them were positive matches, there was also a civil case in the Supreme Court of British Columbia where these five women were fighting, battling over the victim's estate. And recently the court ruled in favor of the children who will now share the estate among themselves, according to Canadian law. Now, at the same time, there is a murder trial ongoing in Vancouver at that same court and a verdict is still pending in the case.
1: Dan, how is the community responding to this? What sense do you get in, in, in both the Chinese community of uh, Vancouver and the wider Vancouver
2: community? I think it's fair to say that the reaction among the Chinese community and the wider va- community in Vancouver and Canada at large has been one of both revulsion for the heinousness of the crime, but also fascination about the glittering lifestyle that the victim and his killer embody. Dan, you wrote
1: in the New York Times that this story pulls together many strands of recent changes to the city. I mean, what do you mean? This is such a freaky story about one specific family. How does it pull together strands of recent changes to Vancouver?
2: So it's important to emphasize that this is one freakish, lethal case of a particular toxic Canadian immigrant dream gone awry. But the strands that it does... Pull together is that at the moment thousands of wealthy people from abroad and from Asia in particular are coming to Vancouver, which has become a Switzerland of sorts for, in particular, Chinese money and people seeking a better life. And so the story of Juan Gang and the cousin, or the poor cousin from Montreal, who came to Canada in search of greater prosperity and security away from the Chinese state, is emblematic of what's happening on a much larger level. And at the moment, a big issue that everyone's talking about in Vancouver is the bubbling uh, real estate market and the fact that the city has become unaffordable because of wealthy foreigners buying up real estate. Also, the lifestyle of these second generation Chinese, many of whom have come to uh, Vancouver, has transformed the social fabric of the city So I think in a way, although it's an extreme and violent example, the case does hold up a mirror to some of the wider dynamics of what's happening with immigration and demographics in Canada and Vancouver in particular. Looking at this as as a media happening, I mean, it's certainly been
1: copiously covered. But when I think about a story like this, were it to happen in in the States with 24-7 cable news and, you know, video, video cameras in courtrooms how do you think this would have played out differently if it had happened in America?
2: Well, I've covered, I was a crime reporter in New York City and in London and in many other, and in Paris. And indeed, you know, when you're, when you're allowed to have a TV in the courtroom, it makes a case much more visceral, much more sensational. I think the fact that the, me, the TV cameras are not allowed in courtrooms in Canada, perhaps gives the proceedings more uh, sobriety. I think also because... You know, we think of Canada as being like this kumbaya, progressive, liberal country. When you have a sensational, brazen, violent crime such as this, the degree of shock is perhaps of a higher level because we don't expect this kind of thing to happen in Canada. And I think that was reflected you know, in the widespread media interest in the case, both in Canada, but also in China. Dan, what can you tell me about the coverage in China? Well, the the Chinese media has covered the case. It's been featured in glossy magazines. There's particular interest in, you know, the hundred girlfriends and in the victims' sort of sexual escapades. Also, you know, why he went to Canada. And so it's been covered in, in, in some Chinese media in as if a soap opera. At, in the same time, uh, in the Chinese language media in Vancouver, the newspaper Xingtao has also given a lot of column inches to the story. So I think, you know, the Chinese community in Vancouver is very fascinated and, and no doubt also repulsed by the story.
1: Is this more of a tabloid? I don't really know much about the, the, the crime press in China. I think of the Chinese press as just being very state-controlled and repressive. Is there, is there a salacious, pulpy
2: tabloid press that covers this kind of stuff? Not so much a tabloid press, but there are, you know, glossy magazines that cover people and there have been very long articles about the lives and times of the victim, Wan Gang. There has not been a lack of coverage. Uh, Of course,
1: this is going to get widespread interest. But I have to say, there's like a balkanization of news stories in Canada where it feels like if I lived in Vancouver, I would know a lot more about this than in in Toronto. I mean, here, everyone's talking about the Sherman murders. There's this Hollande murder case out east that we pick up little bits and pieces of. It it was a bit surprising to me. Like, when I read your story, and I think it's something maybe about the way the Times covers Canada— it was one beginning to end cogent version of this that kind of like, oh, this is a, a really shocking story. In previous versions, you get a little piece of the custody battle or this part or that part. You know, it, it was interesting to me that like the you think that the nation might be gripped by something like this, waiting for verdicts and the next step. But it doesn't seem to have been the case.
2: Well, I think, you know, one of the advantages we have as, as an American newspaper looking uh, at Canada, you know, with a foreign eye is to take a big picture approach and to come at stories with this perspective. And I think, you know, we try and bring the global strands together in a story like this. So it's not enough to just describe the gruesome murder. We try and tease out, you know, what is the larger meaning of this? And indeed, I do think it's fair to say that the Canadian media is quite balkanized. And, you know, each province kind of treats its, what's happening almost as if it's a country. I mean, if you look where I'm sitting in Quebec, the biggest national newspaper, French newspaper, La Presse, does not, for example, have a correspondent in Toronto. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, Canadian media can be very local in their approach.
1: And what is the wider meaning of this story?
2: You know, I think essentially this is a tale about greed, revenge, and the corruptibility of money. And that's a universal theme that resonates with everyone. The fact that it taps into the story of a Canadian immigration dream gone rancid... I think is one of the things that makes it uh, resonate. And it's also, as I say, it's happening at a time when thousands of foreigners uh, from Asia in particular are coming to Canada and viewing Vancouver in particular as a sort of Switzerland for money and kin.
1: That's a delicate uh, balance for you as a reporter. You're trying to pull uh, some wider relevance so it's not just some outlier freaky case. And it does seem like there are some things that this reflects about the current moment and and wider trends, But but you... want to do that without necessarily implicating everybody. And, you know, I don't see any reason why any larger group should be implicated in this.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, Vancouver has one of the most vibrant, you know, Asian communities in the world, and certainly in Canada. And, you know, this is just a a marginal, but fascinating case, but one shouldn't extrapolate, you know, anything beyond that.
1: The themes are like almost kind of biblical or universal or Shakespearean, and you know what I mean? Like it's uh, what does seem to be unique to this is this very strange family household dynamic that is a result of money. I mean, you kind of have like people living with their extended family when they're impoverished. But then, you know, multimillionaires cohabitating for tax purposes and creating weird types of power relationships between them. It does feel like you kind of got like a almost like a, a modern Shakespearean drama or some kind of a fable or parable here.
2: No, I think this is really, a, uh, as you say, a morality tale about the corruptibility of money and the idols uh, of wealth in the age of reality TV and Twitter. And I think it encapsulates that story in a very toxic but Shakespearean way. And I think that's what really appealed to me. One last question, Dan. When can we expect the true crime podcast version of this? That is a very good question. I'm working on it. <laughs> Wait, seriously? I, uh, I I just have a book out called uh, The Last Job, The Bad Grandpas, the and The Hatton Garden Heist about a sensational uh, heist uh, undertaken by a group of geriatric thieves uh, in London in 2015. So uh, I'll be looking to do some more stuff on true crime in the future.
1: You've got your classy book out of your system. Now you can focus on this story. Dan, thank you so much for sharing this incredible story with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it that is your Canada Land episode for this week you can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com i read everything you send we are on twitter at canadaland our website is at canadalandshow.com i don't know if you've noticed this but canadian politics has gotten insane you need a show to help you understand it and oppo has a new episode up on tuesday listen to jen and justin this week we have an election coming. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish. Our senior producer is Kasha Mihailovich and our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication of Canada Land is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do here at Canada Land, all of the podcasts are news stories. If you want to help us, if you want to get ad-free versions of our podcasts, that is something that we give to people who support us at patreon.com slash Canada Land. We do rely on your support.